I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our final tower. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. This is part two of the life of Joan of Arc. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and do that. On today's episode, we're going to go through what happened in the war after Joan's death, what happened between the French and the English. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about her legacy. I'm going to do a little bit of character analysis and talk about what made her great. And then I'm going to do a little bit of end notes going here and there, talking about other theories for why she heard voices, why she's called of Ark, if that wasn't her last name, and more random thoughts that are floating around in my brain about Joan. So let's get to it. But first, a word from our sponsors. Have you ever gone into a restaurant and you thought, nice, I only spent $25 on that meal. And then the bill comes back and then you add in the drink and the tax and the appetizer and you actually spent like $55. And you think, how did that happen? Well, guess what? It sucks when that happens at a restaurant. It sucks way worse when that happens when you're selling a house because those are tens of thousands of dollars you're losing and it's really, really painful. I just bought a house and so I have experienced something like this firsthand in the very recent past. That's why you have to use Clever. It's the smartest way to start your home sale. They have negotiated insider rates with over 19,000 top realtors from all the major brands like Keller Williams, Compass, and Remax. And when you're ready to sell your home, they'll help you compare top local realtors in your area and pay just 1.5% to your listing agent, half the typical fee. The average Clever customer saves more than $9,000. I wish I had an extra $9,000. I'd buy a sauna to put in my backyard to go next to my cold plunge. Clever has tons of information on their website to help you navigate the selling process. So be smart. If you're selling your house, go to listwithclever.com and save yourself 10 grand. I know I will. Again, that is listwithclever.com or just check the link in the show notes. And by the way, when you do use Clever, let them know that I sent you. Okay, so after Joan's death, things go poorly for the Armagnacs. They were always feckless in, in war for the most part, except for when she was leading them. And that trend continues after her death. Henry VI, the young king of England, marches into Paris, which is a big deal. And militarily, the Armagnacs suffer some setbacks. But the Armagnacs are kind of rescued by fate. So when Joan was leading the the Armagnacs, the Burgundians and the English had been pulled closer together because all of a sudden these, these Armagnacs are having military victories. They're being successful. They're a real threat. And so this alliance is drawn tighter between the Duke of Burgundy and the English. Well, now with, with Joan gone and things kind of settling back into their regular pattern, the Burgundians and the English start to, to drift apart. And this is accelerated when Anne, who is the sister of the Duke of Burgundy and the wife of the Duke of Bedford. So this had been uh, this really important political marriage that had cemented the two sides together. She dies. And shortly thereafter, the Duke of Bedford dies. And so now the Burgundians say, you know what? Forget it. This isn't really working out with us. We're fighting with Armagnacs all the time. It's destroying our land. And they switch sides. And so now it truly is, instead of the English-Burgundian alliance against Armagnacs, uh, with the Burgundians switching, it really is the English versus the French. 
which you all have probably been waiting for. So I stopped saying all these weird names and talk in, in terms that you can understand. So, you know, just a, a couple years after Joan dies, the Burgundian switch. Now you have the English against the French. That doesn't mean that the English can't win. If they had had strong leadership, uh, maybe they still could have defeated, you know, both the Burgundians and the Armagnacs together, all the French united. But they didn't have strong leadership. Henry VI, uh, this boy king, was not like his father, was not a strong leader. Uh, he, he was very compliant. He basically said yes to whoever was in front of him. And so that means that English leadership is fractured between all these different advisors and dukes and noblemen who are sort of trying to have their sway over this compliant king. And so uh, you have non-unified leadership on both sides now. And so uh, not, neither side is really progressing, but I guess inertia tends to favor the English being in control of England and uh, the French being in control of France. So eventually all the English holdings in France are rolled back, including, in fact, the English holdings in southern France in Gascony, which had not even been on the table, right? And so, ironically, uh, just a few years after Joan of Arc's death, she got her wish. Her vision was completed. The English were completely ejected from France. And I think it's important to note that that is her doing. You know, it, it can be tempting to see her as a pawn, right? As the symbol used by the Armagnacs to, to come back and, and anoint their king and then used as a symbol by the English of, you know, the horrible heresy and the backwardness of, of the Armagnacs. And so she's burned at the stake. But it's not true that she was a pawn in someone else's game. She was a mover and a shaker. She was a player herself. She imposed her will on the world. Again, it didn't happen exactly how she thought it would, but the Armagnacs were on the verge of losing. You know, the English, if they took Orleans, that was it, game over. And she's the one that relieved that siege. And it was her idea. Nothing was going on before she shows up. And then, yes, it's true that her siege on Paris doesn't work. And there's not this dramatic removal of the English from France, maybe the way that she thought or hoped. But what did happen is that the English threat was relieved. And so the same familiar stable battle lines could be drawn, which allowed things to progress in a way that eventually saw the, the English out of France. But that, that never even has the chance to happen if Joan of Arc doesn't show up. If she never shows up, then the English probably take Orleans and and then kick them out of Bourges and the Armagnacs are, are gone, maybe control a rump state in southern France and, and the English control France and who knows how the world would be different. So I think that's something that's important to remember is that uh, Joan was a strong-willed woman who, who was able to impose that will on the world. After the French retake all France, Joan's mother writes to King Charles and says, hey, could we retry Joan? Obviously, this trial was rigged. Obviously, it was a kangaroo court. There was never even a shadow of impartiality, and it would be great to clear her name. And so they do. They conduct a, a second trial. And this one is every bit as thorough as the first trial, but obviously each has a slant. So the first one is just trying to convict her of all these crimes of witchcraft and heresy. And the second trial, of course, is trying to exonerate her and show that she was actually uh, a, a good woman. And it's really interesting. We know more about Joan than almost anyone else of the era because of this, because we have these two different courts who take two very different approaches. And it's like we got light coming at her from both directions. And so we get this real clear picture of who she is. It's just fascinating that 
it's not a king, it's not a duke, it's not the pope, but like the person who we have the most documentary evidence of, who we know the most about their personality, their childhood, their their whole life is Joan. And I think that's wonderful. She comes across as a very interesting figure. One of the things that you see about Joan as you read some of the testimonies from the people that she grew up with was that this was not someone who was ambitious. This was not someone that people expected would go on to accomplish great things. And Joan herself you know, said this. She said, although I would have rather remained spinning at my mother's side, yet I must go and I must do this thing for the Lord wills that I do so. And everyone that knew her in Domremy kind of backed that up, said, yeah, I mean, she went to church, she spun, she worked hard, but she was not someone who drew attention to herself until all of this happened, which to me, again, kind of bears out that this was something she really believed. This was not someone who was opportunistic, who was seeking to get famous uh, or seeking riches or something like that. No, this was a very sincere believer. One of the other things that's interesting to me is in the second trial, they establish miracles, right? That attended her. And some of these miracles are what you would expect. So they're miraculous healings. The bastard of Orleans talks about when they were lifting the siege at Orleans, they needed to row a boat across this river and the winds were against them. And so they're getting worried because, oh man, we're, we're sitting ducks in these boats and we can't get across the river and the English are going to start shooting arrows at us. And as soon as Joan shows up, the wind changes and it's able to help blow these boats across the river, right? So uh, you have these sort of miracles that you'd expect, I think. And then there are miracles that I find uh, very interesting, shall we say. So one is her chastity and her modesty were very important. So this is someone who, you know, you got to think about the times, right? When honestly, womanhood was seen, especially in these contexts, in a military context, was seen as, you know, weak and effeminate. Um, but also I think maybe a alien. And so for example, one of the miracles is that people say that she didn't have periods, that she did not bleed every month. Now, actually this might be true. I think it probably is true. One, because of the physical hardship that, that she was enduring on these long marches and also because she ate very little and very rarely. And this is something I'll talk about later. But I think the conditions were there that it could be possible. She did not have, um, yeah, menstrual periods for, for long periods of time while she was on these campaigns. Um, uh, other things that people mentioned was that she rarely had to pee. And again, this is another, this is a miracle because, you know, this is someone who's trying to maintain her modesty around all these men. Having to undress and go relieve yourself is going to be something that is uh, difficult, uh, difficult to maintain your modesty while you're doing that. And so they said that her, uh, her, urinary continence was uh, a miracle was was unbelievable you know again this is a funny miracle to me but but they considered it miraculous uh, other miracles that i find funny are a, a couple of people testified that you know she'd be changing and taking off her armor and oops i accidentally saw her legs or i accidentally saw her breasts and they'd say that they were nice legs but i did not feel any carnal desires and so this is evidence of a miracle i mean what kind of man would see these nice legs uh bare legs and, uh, and not feel carnal desires towards a woman. But 
but I didn't. And so this, this you know, this is a miracle. Uh, more realistically, there are other people who, who said, you know, of course, when I first met her, I regarded her as a woman, as a, a potential object of desire, but that upon seeing her absolute conviction to God, that those thoughts kind of fled from them. And I thought that was interesting, that it was her conviction, her absolute rock-solid belief, that is what made it possible for her to kind of overcome these base feelings and these prejudices, that this is just a woman, something to be admired, something to be desired. Um, but no, the, the, those ideas, those feelings kind of went out the window when they saw how strongly she believed in what she believed in. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting about Joan is that she was sort of able to overcome her womanhood, her femininity, right? Like with, with this conviction, people saw past it. But at the same time, I don't think it's fair to say that she tried to be a man. I think she was able to use both masculine and feminine energy to her advantage. She intertwined the two. Yes, she physically dressed as a man for protection, um, but she leaned into her traditionally female traits to help motivate the troops. She always referred to herself as la pucelle. She referred to herself as the maid. And I, I think it was the fact that she was such a small, thin, young woman that made her such an effective leader. Yeah, she was making it clear that she was relying on her faith in God and not on her physical strength and arms. And, and so in one way, she's sort of able to, to inhabit masculine energy a little bit in that she's able to overcome prejudices of the day. But at the same time, she's such an effective leader because she leans into her feminine energy. It's what makes her seem kind of otherworldly and divine and sent by God. And, and I find that interesting. Okay, we're going to talk about uh, other theories for why she may have seen these visions and heard these voices after this quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. For anyone trying to accomplish great things, there is nothing more important than focus. There's a great story of Bill Gates and Warren Buffett meeting together, and someone asks, what was the most important attribute for your success? And they write down their answers, and they have both written down the same word, focus. And for founders, one of the most common things that breaks people's focus is fundraising. You're worried about raising money, and now you're not as focused as you should be on creating an insanely great product. And that's why I'm excited to partner with today's sponsor, Capitally. They're on a mission to help founders raise money insanely fast. They have a network of investors, both angels and VCs, and a platform that connects founders to them easily and seamlessly. Some founders are able to start taking meetings in less than 24 hours and secure soft commitments for funding in less than 30 days. Capitally is the go-to place when it comes to raising capital for startup founders from pre-seed all the way to series A and B. So if you're a founder who needs to raise money, go to capitally.vc, book your consulting session and have a chat with the team. And while you're there, let them know that I sent you. Again, that is Capitally, that's capital and then the letter Y at the end, capitally.vc. Okay, so what are some other explanations that people have for why Joan may have seen these visions? One is ergot poisoning. So ergot is this tiny fungus that can infect uh, wheat and it has a, a mild psychedelic effect. So it's essentially um, one second you're eating bread or drinking beer and the next second you're tripping. And this 
did happen. It definitely can happen. This is a real phenomenon. I think, though, when people propose this, it's oftentimes people who are really into psychedelics who try and see them in every historical event. And so they'll tell you, you know, Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, all tripping on shrooms. The Greeks tripping on shrooms. Romans tripping on shrooms. Um, and, and there's very, very little evidence that Joan had ergot poisoning. Um, for one, if she did, you know, she's eating the same bread, drinking the same beer uh, as, as everyone around her, presumably. So how come everyone else wasn't having visions? For another, you know, this could happen once in a localized place. Uh, but this is someone who's traveling all around France. She's not taking her bread with her. So she just gets ergot poisoning everywhere she goes. Because again, she continues to have these visions and, and hear these voices uh, throughout her her life after after adolescence. So I, I don't think that adds up at all, the ergot poisoning. Other explanations are that maybe she had a brain tumor that was causing her to actually hear voices. And fair enough, I mean... Auditory hallucinations can be caused by brain tumors if they impinge on a certain part of the brain. I also find that unlikely just because the onset of the voices was adolescence, which is very common for auditory, you know, normal auditory hallucinations that people have. It would be quite the coincidence if she just happened to start getting a brain tumor at this time when people who have auditory hallucinations generally start to experience those hallucinations for the first time. So the idea that she had a brain tumor, again, you know, it's, it's certainly possible, but it seems very unlikely to me. Very, very unlikely. Of course, there's another explanation that she just lied, that she was making this up. I don't find that likely for the reasons stated above, that she's willing to die for it. So generally, you're not willing to die for a lie. And that it matched all the symptoms of auditory hallucinations. Um, she, everyone around her thought that she was sincere. Honestly, not even her enemies tried to... Uh, paint her as a uh, as a charlatan or as, as someone who was in it for the fame even they recognized her obvious sincerity and said that it was more likely that she was you know her demons they took for granted that she really was hearing these things so i also find it very unlikely that she was making things up which brings me to the last and my favorite explanation for why she might have been hearing these voices which is that it could have been caused by delirium from essentially uh, anorexia. And why is this my favorite explanation? Well, not because I think it's true. I Obviously, I don't think it's true at all. I already told you what I think is true. But, but because it points out something that I didn't bring up in episode one, which was that she was an extremely light eater, which of course is, you know, one of my hobby horses. But like even more than most people I've talked about, Joan was known as a light eater. So she was just peckish at the dinner table. She ate very little, but she was also fasting all the time. So this is a common thing in many religions. If you've heard of Ramadan, this is when Muslims will fast from sunrise to sunset. So most of the middle of the day, they will not eat any food. And this is obviously not just Muslims. So uh, Jesus was supposed to have fasted for 40 days. It was one of the miracles that he did. He didn't eat for 40 days. Uh, I think Moses did the same thing. And this is a, a practice in many religions that is supposed to bring you closer to God and, and help you have religious experiences, abstaining from food. So Joan ate very little, very light eater, and uh, and fasted very frequently, uh, to the point where some people read backwards and think that she had some form of anorexia. Now, again, I don't think this is a good explanation at all for the voices that she heard, because 
people don't talk about her as low energy or delirious in any other sense of her life. On the contrary, she was described as a, as a very energetic person who always wanted to be moving and doing. So, uh, you know, I doubt she was an anorexic and I doubt that she was experiencing these things because she was delirious. But I do love that this theory hits home the fact that she was such a light eater, which is, of course, a common attribute with, with many, many other great people. Uh, a couple other things to address. One is, why is she called Joan of Arc? So she actually never called herself Joan of Arc. Um, the reason that people call her this is she always called herself Joan La Pucelle. Uh, she said she had no last name that she knew of. She was just Joan, which is, you know, typical peasant life at the time. Most peasants did not have last names. They're just, you know, Joan. In fact, in her local village, they called her Jeanette, which I think is like a diminutive. It's like a familiar version of the name. But so, so why Joan of Arc? Well, it's because uh, after King Charles was anointed, he decided to ennoble Joan and her family. So, so now they are not just peasants, they are nobility and the title that they are given, um, is Arc. So they are now the, of Arc family. That was the, the title of nobility that they're given. So technically she was Joan of Arc. Now she wanted to emphasize her commitment to God and her special calling. She did not want to emphasize that she was now a noble woman. So she never called herself Joan of Arc. Uh, she called herself still Joan La Pucelle. But that is why she is known as Joan of Arc to, to all of us is because uh, ever after her family was the of Arc family who had this, uh, you know, this deed, this, this title. And just a, a few other like little notes that I had. One is, uh, it's interesting. We know so much about Joan and we have these sort of objective descriptions of her. Many mention her dark hair, but very few mention whether they think she is beautiful or not. Um, and so it's surprising that in the 1400s um, that there's so few of these accounts regard her physical appearances. I mean, that's something that is rarely granted to female figures in history, right? And yet Joan was able to sort of be seen for who she was and the, the qualities that she contained on, on the inside. Um, and so I think that's interesting. And part of that was the uniform. I think that's one of the reasons that she uh, was so committed to wearing men's clothes and emphasizing her virginity is that uh, she did not want to be sexualized. She wanted to be a symbol of something bigger and something more important. Okay. And then I'll just finish off talking a little bit about her legacy. So this second trial uh, exonerates Joan, sort of clears her name, but her status is sort of up in the air. Um, she's no longer an official heretic in, in the Catholic church. Um, but neither is she an official hero either. You know, obviously the Pope just kind of wants to be politic. These are two Catholic powers that are warring the English and the French, and he doesn't want to offend anyone. So whatever the Pope is kind of happy to not comment on this whole situation. But over the years, Joan becomes a symbol of, of French nationalism and also in many ways, a, a symbol of French Catholicism. This is a woman who supposedly conducted miracles in the name of God. I think as far as the Catholic church is concerned, it becomes a little easier for them to recognize her as a hero once the English become Protestant. Uh, so they're no longer a Catholic power. So the Catholic church is firmly aligned with France 
in any dispute or conflict between England and France. And so in, in finally in 1920, uh, she's actually made a, a saint. She's canonized as a saint in the Catholic church. And now she is viewed as a, as a hero to Catholics. She's also viewed, of course, as a hero to the French. Uh, she's viewed as a very nationalistic figure. Interestingly, her legacy is sort of adopted by everyone, whether you are, you know, a, a revolutionary, a socialist, whether you're a reactionary, all of them have tried to use the mantle of Joan to support their cause. Napoleon himself commissioned a statue of Joan that read, the illustrious Joan proved that there is no miracle which French genius cannot accomplish when national independence is threatened. We will see if that is true. So there you have it. In terms of my own personal takeaways, um, one of the things that I took away is something I mentioned in Brigham Young part two, which was uh, irrationality. You know, I, I thought Brigham Young made an irrational decision, but, but that's what made him a great leader. You have certain values that you have to be almost irrationally committed to. And you can see that with Joan, that she has this commitment to French independence, to victory in the war, and to following through on this, this vision that she has. It, it reminds me of, uh, this is going to seem like a weird comparison, but you know her insistence that no, we have to try and assault Paris, we have to try and take it against all the odds, even when it seemed irrational, it seems foolhardy, reminds me of this scene, if you listen to the Brigham Young episodes, uh, when the U.S. Federal Army is outside of Salt Lake City, and he is still insisting on the independence of, uh, of the Mormon people at the time. And I think this is often true. You know, um, Steve Jobs was the ultimate irrational leader, right? And essentially to me, that irrationality is, again, I'm just so committed to these values that there are certain things that I will not compromise on, even the rational thing is to compromise a little bit, right? Just a little compromise, who cares? Uh, another good example of this is the founder of Costco. So Costco is, if you're not an American, is this great big bulk buying, discount buying a store that we have here. And they're known for their low, low, low prices. So you can find great, great deals at Costco. And this founder was committed to keeping great deals, keeping everything really cheap. And one of the things about Costco is that they have this food court and you can go to the food court and you get this amazing deal, which is you can get a hot dog and a drink for a buck 50, even now. Okay. So this founder comes up with this deal, you know, it's going to be a buck 50 for a hot dog and a drink in 1985. 1985. Think about how much inflation has happened since 1985. And so eventually in 2009, the cost of meat is getting so expensive. They come around and they say, all right, we, we really need to raise the price of this hot dog. We're losing our shirts on it. We're losing money on hot dogs. And the CEO says, and this is a quote, quote, if you raise the effing hot dog, I will kill you. Figure it out. <laughs> he later said, uh, I know it sounds crazy making a big deal about a hot dog, but we spend a lot of time on it. We're known for that hot dog. That's something you don't mess with. And so he has this like total irrational commitment to this certain price point. And you can see the same thing in Steve Jobs when he says, okay, you know, the machine, the actual box for this Mac needs to have exactly 90 degree angles has to be perfect. Can't be a degree off. Okay, like that's irrational, but he had this commitment to physical perfection in their machines. And this thing that seems irrational actually is what makes great leaders, that they have certain values that they just don't compromise on. And you can see that with Joan. She just, 
had these amazing values that she never compromised on. And that's one of the things that I'm going to take away is I need to identify in myself, or what are those values that I'm never going to compromise on and, and stick to those. And that's what makes you a great leader. All right. I think that's it. I think that's where I'm going to wrap it. Thanks for coming on this journey with me. Um, so until next time, thanks for listening to how to take over the world.